Since my fate and your determined virtue snatch you away from me against my will, though my tired eyes are not yet drunk with the dear shape of my son, I shall not send you rejoicing with a happy heart, or allow you to carry the signs of good fortune, but first I shall free my heart of countless laments. Poem 64, lines 218 to 224. Catullus could hear his father in the dining-room, conversing with Julius Caesar on the peculiarities of the world. He was used by now to travel weary men arriving at his home, seeking soft cushions, pickled fish, and pork fattened on the acorns of Verona's oak-trees. As this one tucked into the feast laid out before him, he talked about the wonders of the Black Sea, savage Gauls and Britons lining the chalk-white cliffs, remote and terrifying giants. Catullus, who took more pleasure between the sheets than talking at the table with his father's friends, stepped outside. The rain was pounding the streets, which streamed and steamed with sewage. The Adige River was flowing quickly on the lap-like curve that held the town. As a boy, Catullus had often crossed its waters and felt the chill they bore from the Alps. He remembered the evening he first witnessed a locked-out lover, sitting in a doorway here on a lowly street. The youth had been crying, trying in vain to write a poem to voice his lament. For some time Catullus had stood there, watching. Poor boy, his buttocks aching with the damp cold of the doorstep. Would not the door have more to say than the inconsolable youth? The door belonged to the house of a love-poet called Caecilius. Catullus transcribed its words. It's not my fault. I hope to impress Caecilius. I am now in his charge, although they say it is my fault. No one can honestly say I've done anything wrong. It's true what people tell you. Blame the door. Line partly corrupt. Whenever some crime is discovered, everyone shouts at me, Door! It's your fault. Poem 67 The door was not weeping, but lamenting, slammed shut and berated with every misfortune that had passed through it. Catullus captured in the pace of its speech all the urgency and forcefulness a man would expect from one whose words had been stifled for most of its lifetime. With its ear for gossip, the door went on to reveal that, before Cassilius was resident in the house, a virgin had moved in and confided in her female slaves. Virgin, because it transpired that the scamp had a former father-in-law who lay with her when she discovered his son's little sword dangling more flaccid than a delicate beet. In Catullus' poem, one image was layered upon another, contorting what was masculine, if small, into an effeminate and unedifying vegetable. The so-called virgin came from the fertile Brixia, Brescia, to Verona's west. Brixia, beloved mother of my Verona, Catullus exclaimed, reflecting on the Gauls who had travelled between it and his home. The Gauls and their many tribes were inclined like geese to migrate whenever the desire took them. Lately, Gallic tribes had been flying through Transalpine Gaul to Verona's north, endangering Rome's control over its provinces. So Caesar rested here at his father's home 
wearied by the Gallic War he was now waging. It was 55 BC. Catullus had come back to Verona, where he reflected nostalgically upon his roots. It was a Roman colony now, but remained in his mind a place of Gauls and Etruscans. While the sleeping fields of Brescia evoked his Gallic line, the summers he spent in his family villa on nearby Sirmio, Sermione, an attractive peninsula on Lake Garda, tended to carry him back into the arms of his ancient ancestors. Whenever its waves shivered in the breeze, he would dream of the Etruscans, the great lords of Italy before the rise of the Romans, and their curious origins in faraway lands 